Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Since 2001, the United States has resettled nearly 1 million refugees from around the world. Most recently, the evacuation in Afghanistan created a new patient population resettling in communities across the nation. While general guidance exists for the medical management of refugee populations, the rapid evacuation in Afghanistan led to gaps in medical care and unique mental and physical health considerations. Additionally, there is equally increasing need to provide ongoing care for this population, which may be culturally, genetically, and medically unique from other patients in your practice. Today, I invite Dr. Jennifer Nelson, a pharmacist at Mayo Clinic Health System in La Crosse, Wisconsin, to review current guidelines for refugee population healthcare and identify unique treatment consideration for Afghan refugees. The reason I want to talk about this topic today is because of the recent evacuation from Afghanistan in August, which saw an influx of over 50,000 refugees into the United States um, at eight different military bases in the United States, in Virginia, New Jersey, Texas, and in Fort McCoy in southwest Wisconsin. So our objectives today are to, one, outline Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and uh, from now on I'll refer to that as CDC, guidelines for initial care of refugee populations, to recognize unique disease states, genetics, and cultural considerations for the Afghan refugee population, and finally, to identify treatment for unique disease states in the Afghan refugee population. So to get started, we first want to define what is a refugee. The United Nations defines a refugee as someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. The U.S. further defines this to include someone who has experienced past persecution for these same reasons. And in fact, the U.S. has over 1 million refugees since 2001, um, and actually over 3.1 million since the Refugee Act of 1980 was enacted. And so the process for uh, getting a refugee to, into the United States is really an alphabet soup of different government organizations. And so um, you have the USRAP, or the United States Refugee Admissions Program, which is funded by the DOS, or Department of State, in conglomeration with DHS, Department of Homeland Security, and DHHS, Department of Health and Human Services. Um, and this really starts the process of processing the cases through the RSC, or the Resettlement Support Center, and that's funded by the PRM, or the Bureau of population refugees and migration. Uh, they shuttle the refugees through to uh, interviews and screening processes. Interviews are conducted by the USCIS, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, um, really to determine if they are eligible to be a refugee. They then go through to get funding um, through the PRM and then RNP, reception and placement, and that funding is for three months of basic necessities and um, to aid in resettlement. And then the IOM, or International Organization of Migration, helps bring them over to the United States, um, where they are then taken care of by the State Department of Health and Human Services. And so this is a very confusing process for us in the United States. Um, now compound this with having a new language, a new country, a new culture, to all learn at the same time. And there are also additional healthcare challenges that are faced abroad for refugees. The first of these being mental health. 
there's a higher rate of mood disorders, PTSD, and anxiety in refugee populations. Um, in fact, a 2020 study showed that uh, there was a 32% incidence of PTSD in refugee populations and a 31% incidence of depression. Um, this is multifactorial and stems from a change in access to basic needs, um, exposure to violence, torture, and loss, and culture shock. And actually, in southwest Wisconsin, we've seen um, stress and anxiety uh, in our patients, particularly from the worry about family that is still in Afghanistan, um, and then adjustment disorder. So um, having to adjust to not being able to go back home, where you live is dependent on the government, um, and families can be separated. Additionally, there is a unique ideology and a high incidence of chronic pain in the refugee population. And this really stems from um, different living situations. So being in cramped conditions and not being able to move as much can cause chronic pain. Um, actually, torture can play a bigger role than we uh, may realize. A 2015 study of U.S. refugee populations saw a 44% prevalence of torture in refugee populations. Um, an example of this that was very commonly mentioned was positional torture, so being confined to a very small area or being chained somewhere um, that causes deformities and leads to chronic pain. Violence and traumatic injuries that don't heal properly can also lead to chronic pain. And then somatization, so um, uh, somatic distress to uh, psychosocial stressor can lead to chronic pain as well. Also, unique disease exposure, exposure in uh, abroad populations, um, specifically due to endemic disease for mycobacterium species such as Hansen's disease and tuberculosis, and then parasitic infections caused by um, either um, insect populations, so malaria from mosquitoes or the protozoan leishmaniasis from sandflies, um, as well as helminths or worms that can be from contaminated water, so the worm that causes schistosomiasis, um, or contaminated soil, so you're looking at hookworms, ascaris, and whipworm are commonly referred to as soil-transmitted helminths, and then there's also the roundworm which causes strongylodiasis. So when considering all of these, the CDC has created guidelines for how to manage the, the refugee populations and how to best care for them. And in general, it follows a stepwise approach. And so it really starts with overseas screenings, so looking at past medical histories and giving vaccinations, and then guidelines for domestic care. So um, what are some follow-up screenings we want to do, um, and how do we care for unique disease states in the U.S., and then transitions of care, so how do they transition to living in the United States and with United States health care. So we'll first look at overseas screening. So the overseas screening process in general includes vaccinations, presumptive treatments, past medical history evaluations, and disease screenings and quarantines. And these are further made more specific depending on where the refugees come from. So for Middle Eastern populations, some examples of vaccinations including diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, polio, and this can either be the oral or the inactive polio virus, COVID, among others. Um, presumptive treatment in the Middle East is given for the helminths, strongyloides, and soil-transmitted helminths mentioned earlier. Um, and then past medical history notably includes physical and mental health screenings. And then further screening for specific diseases in the Middle East include tuberculosis, Hansen disease, sexually transmitted infections, uh, mainly gonorrhea and syphilis. No longer do they screen for HIV since 2010. Um, and then also COVID-19 is now uh, screened before coming to the U.S. And so now we'll go into the domestic care that uh, refugees face when they arrive in the U.S. And so the CDC has created numerous guidelines on domestic care in the U.S. And in fact, they have specific refugee health profiles um, to really be more specific about individual populations. Um, there is not one for Afghanistan just yet. 
The first guideline I'll talk about here briefly is tuberculosis. So they're screened for tuberculosis overseas. The CDC recommends to retest uh, an IGRA upon arrival in the U.S., and this is interferon gamma release assay, or commonly referred to as quant gold in the U.S., um, and this is really to test for a latent tuberculosis infection, which you would then follow up with x-rays um, and acid fast bacillus testing. The next recommendation they have is for lead exposure. So um, traditional medicines and supplements in Afghanistan, India, and Pakistan um, do have lead in them. And so the CDC recommends to screen patients 16 years and younger for lead. The CDC also recommends screening for mental health. And there's actually a refugee-specific mental health screening called the RHS, or Refugee Health Screen 15. Um, they also further recommend screening for PTSD, trauma, and depression in this population. There are also recommendations on the catch-up schedules for immunization. So really this is expanding upon whatever overseas vaccinations they've been given. And then this further is uh, specified for hepatitis B, since they recommend doing serology testing for surface and core antigen and antibodies before getting immunized. Additionally, there are guidance on nutritional deficiencies that are common in refugee populations. Um, and this can cause uh, growth delays. So specifically, they look at iron, zinc, iodine, and then the vitamins D, A, C, and the B vitamins 12, 3, and 1. They also recommend re-screening for sexually transmitted infections, specifically gonorrhea and syphilis, and then screening for the first time HIV, since, again, this is no longer screened abroad anymore. The last guideline that they have is really focused on parasites, and the guidelines recommend a test and treat approach, and specifically for Asian, Middle Eastern, North African, Latin American, and Caribbean populations, the parasites they recommend testing and treating for are soil transmitted helminths, strongyloidiasis, and schistosomiasis, noting that schistosomiasis is not given presumptive treatment overseas. And this is especially important to do this test and treat approach if you're going to be giving a patient high-dose steroids or immunosuppressive therapies um, because these can exacerbate parasitic infections. So the last step we'll go through is transitions of care. And transitions of care can be very complex, and it's really about adapting to healthcare in the United States. So the first consideration I'll talk about is cultural. Um, so how a refugee population believes a, a disease progresses, how they believe it is caused, um, and how they believe it should be treated really affects how they will receive our recommendations for treatment. Um, in addition, family dynamics can be very different, um, culturally speaking. So um, in Afghan populations, for example, there's a very large separation between um, women and men. So if you're speaking with a male patient, um, asking about a female family member would be considered impolite, um, and that can tarnish your relationship. However, in southwest Wisconsin, we've also seen a high incidence of um, helping uh, families helping with um, patient care, so helping with turns or wound care, um, and nurses are teaching them how to do this, and that has helped establish a positive relationship with them. And next, uh, socioeconomic changes are prevalent and require a lot of adapting for these patients. So they may have, career, have had careers in their home country, they may have been financially independent, and um, since moving to the U.S., that career is gone, and financially independence is no longer a thing. It's, it's, um, you're funded by the government, and the government really decides how you spend your money, so to speak. So this can affect if and how they decide to seek treatment. Another barrier is language. So there are many languages speak in speaking in, spoken in Afghanistan, with the most common being Farsi. Um, and so using a trained medical interpreter is highly recommended, but patients have the right to refuse that and have the option to do a family interpreter. And um, with this, we run the risk of potentially things not being translated correctly or them omitting some translations in order to lessen the burden on the patient, which might have good intentions but can have bad repercussions. 
And then navigation in general for the U.S. healthcare can be very complicated. So not just transportation to and from different facilities, but access to primary care. So these patients don't have primary care providers just yet. And so uh, treatments that we would normally reserve for outpatients or, or testing we would reserve for outpatient setting, we have to do while they're inpatient because there is no outpatient setting. Um, and insurance can be very complicated, as we all are aware. Um, so uh, this is further complicated by, well, one, we don't, they don't aren't used to our structure of healthcare, um, and then they get eight months of medical assistance and then have to transition to um, Medicaid, and that can be a very complicated process. Um, and then navigating pharmacies, hospitals, and clinics is one very different, um, and two can be very confusing. So our pharmacies might have different over-the-counter medications available. Um, and then how do you know where to go for a given medical concern? Do you go to a hospital or do you go to a clinic? How would you know if you're not familiar with the system? Um, and then medical appointments themselves are very quick in the United States, sometimes around 15 minutes. Um, whereas in Afghanistan, if you're skipping the small talk that you have before a formal appointment, it's considered impolite and you can really tarnish that relationship with the patient. And so we'll go into our first question here. A 20-year-old male refugee from the Middle East recently arrived in the United States. According to CDC guidelines, what should we screen for as part of domestic cares? A, tuberculosis. B, HIV, C, gonorrhea, or D, all of the above. Um, and reminder, you can respond at pollev.com slash mayorx, or you can text mayorx to 22333 um, and then text the answer. Okay, so it seems like most of you got it right. The answer is all of the above. Um, so the CDC does recommend re-screening for tuberculosis and gonorrhea upon arrival in the United States, and also screening for HIV since this is not screened overseas. So next I'll go into considerations for our Afghan refugees specifically. So I've gone through and outlined this ideal kind of stepwise approach. Now I want you to forget all that because we weren't able to do that with this rapid evacuation of refugees from Afghanistan. We've had to kind of do a consolidated approach of screening and caring and transitioning all at once. Um, some of the consequences of this, if we did not get the presumptive vaccinations, we didn't get the presumptive treatment for helmets, um, and then we didn't get any of the past medical history or screenings that we would have normally gotten. And so for vaccinations, um, they've had to do mass vaccinations at Fort McCoy uh, for polio, tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, COVID-19, influenza, pneumococcal, varicella, measles, mumps, and rubella. So some people getting as many as six shots a day. Um, and actually, a 2018 study in Denmark of their refugee population from Afghanistan found that 57% of the population was either not vaccinated or they didn't know the vaccination status. And this was more common if they were males or ages 12 to 17 years old. Um, the most common gap seen there was diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, and polio. Another consequence is there are unique diseases encountered that we aren't accustomed to seeing in southwest Wisconsin because it's not common in our population. So um, in Iran in 2015, they looked at their Afghan refugee population and saw tuberculosis, multidrug-resistant tuber tuberculosis, malaria. Um, notably, most of that was Plasmonium vivax, so 80 to 95 percent of those malaria strains were vivax species. Um, cholera, Crimean, Congo, hemorrhagic fever, leishmaniasis, and hepatitis B. So far, in southwest Wisconsin, we've seen varicella, mumps, measles, leishmaniasis, tuberculosis, hepatitis A, malaria, COVID-19, and then multidrug-resistant organisms. And this stems from an increased use of antibiotic over-the-counter use in Afghanistan. Um, and actually, a 2021 study looking at um, participants in Kabul found that 73% of participants said that they had used over-the-counter antibiotic use in the last year, and only 25% of them consulted a pharmacist for a duration or directions of use. 
Um, also noting, endemic wild polio virus is prevalent in this country. Um, it's only one of two countries. So Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan are the only two countries with endemic wild polio virus, although we have not seen a polio infection yet. So I'm going to go into some specific diseases that we've seen um, in this population. The first one I'm going to cover is leishmaniasis. So leishmaniasis is caused by sand fly bites, um, and it can present as either cutaneous, mucosal, or visceral, depending on the species. So cutaneous can present weeks to months after being bitten and presents as skin sores um, and cratered ulcers that scab and then scar. And these, uh, these ulcers can last for years in some patients. Um, however, you're not going to necessarily be treating them unless they're complex, and I'll go into that later. Um, mucosal infections can present years after the cutaneous infection. Normally, it's a progression from the cutaneous, um, and this affects mucous membranes in the nose, mouth, and throat, um, and it can cause mucosal destruction, which can be, which can be very deadly. Um, and then visceral leishmaniasis, which is less common, um, can appear months after being uh, bitten by a sandfly, and it presents as fever, weight loss, hepatosplenomegaly, with notably the spleen, spleen being more enlarged than the liver, and pancytopenias. So in Afghanistan specifically, what does leishmaniasis look like? So we have to first start by talking about the different strains. So there's either an eastern versus western hemisphere strain. So the eastern is traditionally and in guidelines called old world strains. And in, uh, in the western hemisphere or the Americas is traditionally called the new world strain. Um, and these present differently and can make you more prone to different infections. So the old world strains that we're worried about in Afghanistan um, include L. infantum, which is synonymous with Chagasi, or L. donovani, and these can cause visceral leishmaniasis, and again, this is less common. And then the L. tropica, L. ethiopica, and L. major species that can cause cutaneous reactions. Noting that many of the new world cutaneous species do progress to mucosal, but this is less common in these old world strains. And Afghanistan is one of seven countries reported to the World Health Organization in 2020, with over 6,000 cases of cutaneous leishmaniasis reported. Um, overall, that's more than 80% of the global cases between those seven countries. And I said earlier that you don't treat cutaneous leishmaniasis unless it's complex, because sometimes it can go in on its own. And this is really how we define a complex cutaneous reaction. So um, species that is at risk for mucosal progression would, would be considered complex. Uh, local subcutaneous nodules, large regional adenopathy, more than four lesions that are more than one centimeter in size, larger individual lesions that are greater than or equal to five centimeters, a failed treatment, an immunocompromised host, a size or location that makes local treatment not feasible, um, lesions on the face, fingers, toes, joints, or genitalia, and then unusual syndromes. So leishmaniasis recividens, which is caused by L. tropica species, is basically where you have the ulcer, um, and then that heals, and then you have papules that form around that ulcer. Um, and then diffuse cutaneous, uh, which is caused by the L. ethiopica species. And this is really where, instead of getting one ulcer, it diffuses into either a plaque or many nodules that can affect sometimes a whole limb. Um, and then disseminated cutaneous, where it can disseminate to other tissues. And so for leishmaniasis, there's only two FDA-approved treatments for leishmaniasis, and this includes liposomal amphotericin B, which is actually only approved for visceral leishmaniasis, and then miltefasone, which is an oral medication. So for liposomal amphotericin B, we treat visceral with 3 milligrams per kilogram per day on days 1 through 5, day 14, and then day 21. And really, you're looking at that total dose of 21 milligrams per kilogram. So your schedule here varies depending on institution and depending on which guideline you look at. And so really, it just seems that this total um, cumulative dose is what is indicative of effectiveness here. And then safety, we want to make sure that we're monitoring for renal function, infusion reactions, and then monitoring potassium and magnesium. 
For miltefacin, this is the oral medication that's approved for cutaneous and mucosal uh, leishmaniasis, specifically for new world strains, however. And then for visceral uh, leishmaniasis for the L. donovani strain because it is less effective for the L. infantum species. And this is dose based on weight. So 30 to 44 kilograms, you would give 50 milligrams twice daily for 28 days. Uh, 45 kilograms or larger, you would give 50 milligrams three times daily for 28 days. Um, and this is also very contraindicated in pregnancy and breastfeeding for up to five months afterwards. Um, there's also GI side effects that can be really dose limiting, so um, taking it with food can help. And also it's hard to get a hold of. It's actually only available through the manufacturer, so you have to get it directly through them, which can cause delays in treatment. Pentamidine intravenous is also used for treating leishmaniasis. However, this is off-label use. Um, it's indicated for, or it's, I'm sorry, it's used for cutaneous leishmaniasis, dosed at three to four milligrams per kilogram IV every other day for three to four doses. If you were using it for mucosal or visceral, they tend to just do more doses. Um, however, this has limited effectiveness in cutaneous, so it's not used as frequently. Um, and there's potential for irreversible toxicity that can happen months after treatment, so pancreatitis that can develop into insulin-dependent diabetes, so very severe reactions here. Um, azole antifungals have also been used um, off-label for treating cutaneous leishmaniasis, so ketoconazole 600 milligrams daily for 28 days or fluconazole 200 milligrams daily for six weeks. Um, however, this has variable effectiveness and there is an instance of resistance um, and GI side effects and QTC prolongation to look out for, so it's not commonly used. Um, pramomycin topical is off-label but is commonly used for cutaneous leishmaniasis and you do a 15% ointment with 12% methylbenzothonium and you apply twice daily for 10 days, rest for 10 days, and then reapply twice daily for 10 days again. Um, there's a lot of good response from L major and L tropica which are very prevalent in Afghanistan um, and really the only side effect seen is local irritation. Um, however, uh, this has to be compounded from capsules, and the capsules are only available through a specialty pharmacy, so it can also be difficult to obtain. This last medication that I have on our table here is pentavalent antimony agents. Uh, these are not available in the United States unless you go through an international or an investigational new drug uh, through the CDC. Um, they're commonly used uh, in other countries, though, for cutaneous mucosal and visceral, um, either IV or intralesionally. So the next disease I'll cover here is measles. So measles is a childhood illness that sometimes occurs in younger adults, um, really presents as fever, the copelic spots followed by the maculopapular rash, which I have pictured here, um, and then the three C's, so cough, coryza, which is inflamed mucous membranes in the nose, and conjunctivitis. The common complications are otitis media, pneumonia, diarrhea and dehydration, and then severe complications can occur, so acute encephalitis, respiratory and neurological complications, and then SSPE, or subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, and this can ha uh, appear seven to 10 years after being infected with measles. And so normally measles is managed with um, supportive cares, and then you treat any superimposing bacterial infections if they occur. However, you can also give vitamin A in hospitalized children, um, and this has been shown to decrease severe, severity and mortality. Um, this is dosed based on age, and it's given once daily by mouth for two days. Um, and so you either give it as concentrated drops or you can squeeze the capsules. Um, so the age dosing is if you're less than six months, you give 50,000 units for two days. Six to 11 months is 100,000 units for two days. And then one to two years old is 200,000 units for two days. Um, and it's only to two years old. You don't really treat um, older children because it seemed to be less impactful in, the, in that age group. Also, for post-exposure prophylaxis, you can treat with the vaccine within 72 hours. 
uh, or you can give immune globulin within six days of exposure, and notably the intramuscular version. Um, this is just a one-time dose, and it's more, uh, it's more uh, tolerated by children um, and less monitoring involved. So the only IM version that exists is Gamistan, which is available via drop ship, so it can be a little bit harder to get a hold of. Um, and it's dosed at 0.5 milliliters per kilogram with a max of 15 milliliters. Um, and it's a solution of 15 to 18%. So um, dosing is a little tricky, and that's why they do milliliters here. And so why vitamin A? It seems kind of random. So there are a few older studies that are cited by the World Health Organization. So Barclay, a 1987 study, showed um, a randomized controlled trial of 180 children of standard of care versus vitamin A, 200,000 units for two days, saw that children under two had lower mortality. Uh, 1999, or yeah, 1990 randomized controlled trial of 189 hospitalized children looking at placebo versus vitamin A, and they had a total dose of 400,000 units starting five days after the rash, uh, saw the faster recovery from pneumonia and diarrhea, less croup, and a shorter hospital stay. Um, and then a 2002 systemic review and meta-analysis in hospitalized children looking at placebo versus vitamin A saw that 200,000 units for two days reduced the overall mortality and pneumonia-specific mortality, but specifically in children two or younger. A 2005 systemic review of specifically randomized controlled trials um, looking at children placebo versus vitamin A saw that two days of the 200,000 unit of vitamin A was associated with a reduced risk of mortality, specifically for people under two years old, um, and lowered the risk for pneumonia-specific mortality. The last disease I'll cover here is malaria. And so malaria, we mostly know that it's spread by the Anopheles mosquito, specifically the female. Um, and then there are two different species which are commonly discussed, Plasmodium vivax and Plasmodium falciparum, which um, Plasmodium falciparum I think is more commonly discussed. Um, but the, they have differing severities. So the vivax species is less severe, but it does have hypnozoites in the liver. And so hypnozoites are really the dormant form that, of the infection that stay in the liver for up to a year sometimes. In Afghanistan, 80 to 90, 95% of, of the malaria seen is Plasmodium vivax. So if you look at a map of Plasmodium falciparum, you'll see it's sparsely covered in the, the country. But if you look at Plasmodium vivax, you see a wide swath of it over the, almost the entire country. And malaria blood smears are really what we use to help guide treatment. So it really helps us determine the parasite density. And so 5% is kind of our cutoff. So less than 5% is considered an uncomplicated infection, whereas 5% or greater is considered a complicated infection. And this can further be classified as severe if you have organ involvement, so acute respiratory distress syndrome, renal failure, severe anemia. So treatment for Pesplodium vipax is really dependent on severity and sensitivity. So chloroquine-sensitive Vivax is treated with chloroquine 600 milligram base once and then 300 milligrams 6 and 24 and 48 hours later. Or hydroxychloroquine 800 milligrams then 400 milligrams 6, 24 and 48 hours later. Um, this is also given with primaquine at 30 milligrams base daily for 14 days or tofanaquine 300 milligrams once. And these two medications are to treat the hypnozoite, so the dormant form in the liver. Um, if you have chloroquine resistance, which is more common for Afghanistan, your first line choice is artemethylumifantrin, so brand name is Coartem, and a 20-120 milligram cap, or tablet. You get four tablets once, then at eight hours, and then every 12 hours for two more days. Or you can do a 12-oclone progonal, which is brand name Malarone, and that's a 250-100 tablet. Um, four tablets daily for three days. Again, you're still giving this with the hypnozoite treatment, the primaquine or the tofanaquine. Um, there are other options uh, for chloroquine resistance. So a second line option would be quinine, 524 milligram base, 
three times daily for three to seven days with doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice daily for seven days. However, doxycycline, although indicated for prophylaxis of malaria, is actually off-label for treatment of malaria. And then your last line option would be mefloquine, 684 milligrams base, then 456 milligrams at six and then 12 hours. And both of these options are still, again, given with primaquine or tofanaquine. And then if you have a severe reaction or if you can't take oral, um, your only option really is IV artesanate. And this is actually used for any species of malaria. Um, it's dosed at 2.4 milligrams per kilogram of actual body weight. And I have up here, if greater than 20 kilograms, that's actually old dosing. So it's no longer changed based on your weight. It's still going to be the 2.4 milligrams per kilogram. And this is because the CDC found um, an FDA uh, pharmacokinetic analysis that showed that 2.4 milligrams per kilogram was good regardless of weight. Um, you dose this at 0, 12, and 24 hours, and then every 24 hours for up to six additional days until your parasite density is less than 1%. So this is where that malaria blood smear really comes into play. Again, this is still given with primaquine or tofanaquine to treat that hypnozoate. And so you'll also notice that primaquine and tofanaquine here are in red, um, and that is because they require G6PT testing. So G6PT deficiency is actually very common in um, the Afghan populations. It's high as 10%, depending on the ethnic group. Um, and the variant present is the Mediterranean variant, which is the more severe variant compared to the African variant uh, that is normally discussed. And so this would be uh, make, make you more prone to have uh, hemolytic anemia reactions from primaquine or tofanaquine. Um, and so if you can't tolerate primaquine or tofanaquine because of G6PT deficiency, uh, the CDC recommends chloroquine prophylaxis for one year at 300 milligrams once weekly to really make sure that you're covering that hypnozoate as best you can since it's more likely to be reactivated within that year. Also, the malaria vaccine that was recently approved by the World Health Organization is actually only indicated for the Plasmodium falciparum species in children, um, so it won't apply to our Plasmodium vivax patients. So our next question here, which medication should be included in a malaria regimen for a 35-year-old male refugee from Afghanistan who presents with mild, uncomplicated symptoms? A, artesanate. B, vitamin A, C, paramomycin, or D, primaquine? Okay, so it looks like most of you got it right. Uh, primaquine, so answer D. Um, so artesanate is for severe malaria infections. Vitamin A is used for treating measles in children. Um, and then paramomycin is actually the topical medication that we can use for cutaneous leishmaniasis. Primaquine we definitely need for that hepatinozoate um, in order to treat uh, the dormant form of, the, of malaria for P. vivax. And so now we're going to discuss some transitions of care and then long-term management for these Afghan refugees. So pharmacists can be really helpful in assisting with this transition of care and ensuring that uh, appropriate long-term management. So um, with all the language and cultural barriers, uh, refugee populations are prone to medication misuse, um, and pharmacists can really be helpful in uh, doing medication reviews with these patients. Um, we can also use pictures to help help them know when to take different medications. Um, and then we know that there are different names for medications internationally. And actually, if you use Micromedics and you search with the international name, it'll route you to the US equivalent. So uh, that can be really helpful. In addition to navigating the pharmacy, so um, I said earlier that over-the-counter medications can be different in other countries, so um, we're not going to have over-the-counter antibiotics like they would in Afghanistan, and so we can help navigate um, and help them know where to find things or what, which aisle to go to to find uh, Tylenol, for example. 
And also we can help with coverage. So they get up to eight months of medical assistance and then they can switch to Medicaid through the marketplace. This whole process can be very confusing and so we can help kind of route them to the correct uh, areas to go through to how to get the right coverage. Um, and these eight months of medical assistance don't cover medical equipment. So we can help come up with creative solutions to get them the medical equipment that they need in the meantime. Also, we are in a prime position to consider genetic implications in these patients. So when looking at genetic considerations, um, firstly, pharmacogenomics. Um, so in Middle Eastern populations, there's a higher prevalence of CYP2C9 star 2 and star 3 alleles, which um, have phenotypes of intermediate or poor metabolizers. And this has, has implications for uh, the NSAIDs, celecoxib, ibuprofen, and meloxicam. Um, there's also a higher prevalence of CYP2C19 star 3 allele, which presents as an intermediate or poor metabolizer, and the star 17 allele, which presents as ultra-rapid or rapid metabolizers. And this has implications in voriconazole and SSRIs, escitalopram, citalopram, and sertraline, and TCAs, amitriptyline, doxepin, and clomipramine. So we can help manage this by uh, understanding that this population may be different and require different dosing from the Caucasian populations. Also, there's a higher prevalence of genetic disorders, which would require um, different long-term management and uh, disease or treatment considerations. So this is caused by a higher prevalence of cousin marriages, as high as 46.2%, um, and warfare, air pollution, and then maternal elements, so a lack of prenatal care and a lack of access to prenatal vitamins. Um, and this presents itself as metabolic disorders in children, 25% of adults with various genetic disorders, and of those, 75.4% of them being reported as autosomal recessive genetic abnormalities, which are more rare. And so our next question here, which of the following would be a genetic consideration if we are treating an Afghan patient for malaria? A, G6PD, B, CYP2C19, C, CYP2C9, or D, autosomal recessive metabolic disorder? Okay. So it looks like most of you got it right. Uh, it's A, so G6PD. Um, this has implications for primoquine or tofanoquine, which are needed for malaria treatment in Afghanistan to treat that hypnozoate. CYP2C19 uh, uh, has implications for voriconazole, SSRIs, and TCAs. CYP2C9 has implications for NSAIDs. And then autosomal recessive metabolic disorders might have considerations for long-term management and treatment, but not necessarily for acute management of malaria. So in summary, Refugees are a population with unique healthcare considerations, including mental health considerations, chronic pain considerations, and a higher prevalence of unique diseases. There's also a stepwise approach to care that's been established by the CDC that may not exist for refugees from Afghanistan. However, those CDC guidelines can be used for treating our Afghan patients. And finally, Afghan populations have uh, unique cultural disease and genetic considerations, and pharmacists can really help with management and long-term success for these patients. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.